Hello, everyone. Welcome to Macro Magic with Michelle. I am your host, Michelle Williams. And today I have a very amazing guest. His name is Alex Jack, and he's been a really influential part of macrobiotics as well as the health food journey um, in the U.S. and around the world. He's written and edited a lot of really amazing books you might know. Um, I actually have some. <laughs> I have some of your books. Um, probably one of the most um, popular ones that I know a lot of my friends have, um, and they're not even macrobiotic, <laughs> is the Cancer Prevention Diet. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I've just been, I've just been a fan of Alex and his work for a few years now, and I'm so happy to have him here. Hello, Alex. Yeah. Well, hello, Michelle. I'm delighted to be with you. And actually my, my grandparents on my mother's side were Williamses. Really? Yeah, so I don't know if we're directly connected, but anyway, we have something in common in that regard as well. Great. Okay, so can you tell us, how did you get into macrobiotics? Well, I think like most uh, people my age and in this country, I grew up with a kind of a standard way of eating. Uh, but then I had the opportunity to go to uh, India during my junior year abroad in college. And so that was an opportunity to become vegetarian. So I was studying in Banaris, which is the holy city of Hinduism on the Ganges River. And so it was very easy to adopt a vegetarian lifestyle. Then about two years later, um, I had the opportunity to return to Asia as a reporter uh, during the Vietnam War. And I was stationed uh, in South Vietnam uh, in Saigon, which I guess today is called Ho Chi Minh City. And I had an experience uh, there that I think changed my life and really put me on the macrobiotic path as opposed to just the vegetarianism. And uh, it's a little involved story, but I like to share share it with you and your listeners and viewers, because I think it was uh, a, a quite um, kind of a life-changing event. What happened was that uh, I think as, as most people know, there, there was a, a kind of a proxy Cold War live war going on in Vietnam during the 60s and early 70s. And there was the South Vietnamese government which was a dictatorship supported by the United States and the Western allies. Then there was the so-called Viet Cong or the National Liberation Front, the resistance or the uh, independence, uh, which was uh, backed by the communist North Vietnam and by the Soviet Union and China. And so the whole country had been uh, really uh, involved in warfare for 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 decades, but most uh, recently for uh, I think about five years at that point. I went in uh, 1967, and my 
first few months in Vietnam was as a kind of a typical journalist uh, visiting both military sites and interviewing civilians and Vietnamese and so forth, American military. But in the course of my, my stay there, I became uh, friends with uh, many uh, Buddhists, some, particularly some young Buddhists my own age who were actually in the underground, who were, were uh, engaged in uh, peace activities. The Buddhists actually uh, were the majority in Vietnam and they were kind of unified around a peace platform, trying to take a middle way between communism and capitalism or East and West. And I discovered that the spiritual leader of Vietnam was a Zen master by the name of Thich Tri Quang, who at that time was taking sanctuary in a large pagoda in the Saigon area. And the South Vietnamese government had wanted to arrest and even to kill him because he had led nonviolent street demonstrations throughout Vietnam and several uh, of the dictatorships had actually fallen during the uprisings. And, uh, but now the current leadership was very fearful that he would do this again. So they cornered him in this pagoda, but they were reluctant to go in and arrest him because they knew that the city would erupt into uh, you know, even more violent uh, violence. And so they had a standoff, you might say. They cornered him in the pagoda and they let him alone. As a journalist, I was able to get um, you know, credentials to go visit him, probably one of the very few people who, who did during that time. And so I went to see him and we had an interview. And the first part of the interview was a standard interview about the war and its effect on the culture and religion of, of uh, Vietnam. And at one point, um, the Zen master, who at that time was probably 20 years older than myself. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, tell me about, uh, you know, what you've been doing, you know, as a journalist. And I said, well, uh, I had just come back from an aircraft carrier positioned off the coast of uh, Haiphong uh, in North Vietnam. And every day, hundreds of American jets were bombing Hanoi and Haiphong. And this was going on, you know, for several years. It was one of the worst aspects of the war. And I told him that while I was on board ship, some of the pilots had taken me aside and they had confided to me that they had nuclear weapons on board the ship. And this was a shocking revelation because Southeast Asia was supposed to be nuclear free. And this could be uh, uh, very easily provoke a response by the other side and lead to nuclear war. And he, to this he responded that yes, uh, he was aware because through the Buddhist underground they had received word from Hanoi, from North Vietnam, that the Soviets had also brought in tactical nuclear weapons, you know, tit for tat. And then I said to him, but aren't you uh, afraid uh, that this could escalate into nuclear war by accident, by design, by some crazy pilot or, uh, you know, military uh, 
leader on one side or the other and result in, in World War III and the end of the world. And at this point, he said, Alex, he said, there's something far worse than nuclear war. And at that point, the room kind of dissolved away and, and I couldn't conceive of anything worse than nuclear war. I'd been brought up at the height of the Cold War and everybody in United States and Soviet Union, Europe, everybody knew that if war broke out, it could be over within a half hour, an hour, a day, a week, and that, you know, most of the industrialized world would be destroyed. And so I could not conceive of anything worse than World War III. And I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and here I am, you know, this, I was young, I was like, like 21 years old, and he was you know, an older Zen master. And, yeah. and I was facing it. It was kind of the ultimate koan or paradoxical riddle. And he said, his, his answer to me uh, was, was, was very simply uh, one word. He said, the rice. And again, I did a double take. What does rice have to do with anything? <laughs> and with the wars, it didn't compute. And I said, again, I beg your pardon, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so he then proceeded to explain to me, he said, Alex, because of the, the conventional war here in South Vietnam, the bombings and the chemicals, the defoliants and the napalm have destroyed our, our crops and rice is our main food. Yeah. We can no longer feed our people for the first time in the history of Vietnam. He said, the rice that we're now eating comes from your president's country. And by that, he meant Lyndon Johnson, who was then the president of the United States, who had uh, succeeded John F. Kennedy after he was assassinated. And Johnson was from Texas. And that is the main rice growing state in the United States. So it turned out that Texas was sending millions of tons of rice to Vietnam, you know, big cargo airplanes. Yeah. And the way that the Zen master said was, he said, that rice has no life. That was the exact phrase he used. And by that, he meant that it was 100% polished white rice. And he then explained to me, he said that food is the foundation, not only of health, but of culture and society. And he went briefly into all different aspects, how it affected your consciousness and spiritual development and art and economy and everything else. And he said, you know, for thousands of years, Vietnam has been in the crossroads of Asia and we have been fighting one big empire after another, China, for thousands of years, then Japan, then the French, now the Americans. And he says, we're very good at surviving. And he says, inevitably, you know, America will leave. And uh, he said, well, it's true that the communists will probably take over from North Vietnam. But he says, it's not the end of the world. He says, eventually they too will collapse. Yeah. Uh, but he said, 
if the food uh, it goes or disappears or vanishes, if healthy food vanishes, he says, we cannot recover our health and we cannot rebuild. So he says, that is what I'm most worried about. That is what keeps me up at night is worrying about our country's food supply because we're a small decentralized little country in Southeast Asia. And yes, the, the World War III will destroy you know, the advanced countries around the world, Russia, America, Japan, Europe, but here and there, smaller places like us will survive the radiation. And so we can quickly, you know, regenerate. So he said that, of course, would be be a terrible catastrophe, but still it's second to the disappearance of human food supply. So that was the first time that I was introduced to that idea. And I must say that I took it in intellectually. I was actually vegetarian, as I said, because of my experience in India. But for me, vegetarianism was healthy eating and also had an ethical component of animal welfare or respect. But he had introduced me now to the much larger social and spiritual aspects of food. And so it made an impression and then when I returned home, I was living in Boston and going to graduate school uh, and kind of gradually gravitated to the Makovada community. And my first uh, seminar with Micho Kushi, who was the main educator and teacher at that time, he gave virtually the same lecture, see, as the Zen master about, you know, the relation of food and consciousness and, and the war in Vietnam and everything else, so. From that point forward, I was able to study directly. Wow, I love your story so much, Alex. I love, I love it so much. It's so amazing. Um, and so from there, how did you start to work with Michio? Because, um, I mean, I notice, I mean, most of the books I have... Um, you are working with another author. Um, so were you first, when you first started working with Michio on books, you were editing or were you um, like co-writing? How did it work? Yeah. Well, what happened then was after I took my first seminar with, with Michio, now this was in 1975, I, I um, became a staff member of the East West Journal, which was a monthly magazine of the Makovata community at that time. In fact, it was kind of the leading countercultural magazine in the country. And so we had articles from, you know, all kinds of teachers and gurus and, and uh, uh, organic farming communities and, and everything else. It was a really exciting, dynamic magazine. And I was there for seven years and, and eventually became editor-in-chief. And at that point, I uh, became closer to Micho and his wife, Aveline. And, and so we together, uh, we developed uh, a proposal to do, first book we wrote was The Cancer Prevention Diet. Mm-hmm. And so I worked with Micho uh, very closely on that book. Micho is a wonderful lecturer and um, 
teacher and counselor and Renaissance person, as was his wife, Aveline. But English was their second language. Yeah. So I, I did you know, the writing basically, but based yeah. on his lectures. And then we worked together. I did, I stayed up all night many times with him, you know, going over different things. And so we worked together closely then for the next, I guess, almost 30 years on, on many different writing projects. But I left the journal and then um, the main school in Boston was the East, uh, well, it was the East West Foundation, which then became the Cushy Institute. And then that moved out to Western Massachusetts. And then I directed that on and off over the years as well. And um, so anyway, it was quite a collaboration. And I did many books also with Aveline, including her first cookbook and her autobiography. And in fact, Aveline and I traveled together in Japan for several months. And Micho joined us on and off during that period as well. So I got to know them quite intimately over the years. So cool. Um, and I'm just, I'm just looking at my questions here. Um, what differences did you notice um, from when you changed? Because I mean, you must have already know, noticed some differences when you were changed from your you know, standard American diet and after you went to India and you started to eat vegetarian. Um, but I guess, what were some differences even from changing um, from a vegetarian way of eating to the macrobiotic way of eating? Did you, were you able to notice any changes? Yes. Uh, as I said, I became vegetarian when I was about 20 or 21 years old in India. And right away, I felt, you know, lighter and uh, a little more up in my energy uh, and seemed to have, you know, a more kind of spiritual orientation to life than before. Uh, in fact, one of the things I noticed over vegetarianism uh, was that, <clears throat> just to go back like to childhood, one of my, my I was very oriented toward, for example, mathematics. Yeah. And, um, and a little bit toward science. And I liked, uh, I was on the chess team in, in high school. And anyway, that kind of left brain thinking. Yeah. And that began to change more toward right brain thinking. <laughs> so I became much more interested in, in literature and poetry and music and so forth. There's a huge shift that took place. Yeah. Uh, and and I probably wasn't even aware of it until well, you know, it had transpired. But some of those those mathematical skills and orientation kind of faded away. And uh, uh, so I became much more, as I said, kind of right brain. And then with macrobiotics, I would say it was a much further refinement of vegetarianism because macrobiotics as a rule. Uh, we we avoid dairy food yeah. and sugar. Um, and so I would say that my emotional life became much more grounded and centered, that I didn't have the kind of highs and lows that I had experienced with vegetarianism, which in turn were actually 
more in the middle range than when I was eating meat or animal food. Yeah. So there was a definite progression, you might say, to becoming more centered. That's so amazing. I definitely relate. <laughs> I definitely relate in my own journey. That's really awesome. Um, and so even now, a lot of a lot of people who eat plant-based, like even my friends that are like recently become vegetarian or recently become vegan, you know, there's the people experience like, um, like, I don't know, criticism or they experience like people making fun of them or like, um, if they, if, if um, anyone tries to like talk about like, hey, plant-based eating is so great, you know, trying to um, just talk about it um, in any way, there's a lot of people who are really have a negative feeling about it. And I used to be one of those people. <laughs> um, so um, I, and, and that's today with as much information and research and all these things, um, you know, veganism is really popular. Vegetarianism is really popular. And, um, but still we, there's some conflict. So I can only, I can only imagine how hard it was <laughs> when you were changing your eating, um, the, the, the amount of awareness was a lot, a lot less and so you had to come up against a lot of criticism and um, difficulty from other people. And um, I just, I just want to know, like, how were you able to cope with that, like, on a emotional or mental level? If and even if you felt like it was um, more difficult, or you know, just how was your experience with that? Well, yeah, I think my case is a little bit unique because um, I came from a family that was extremely socially active, for example, in the civil rights movement and in the peace movement. So we were very used to being the only ones, <laughs> you might say, you yeah. know, in school or in our community or whatever, taking principled stands. So, in comparison to those social movements, yeah. <laughs> vegetarianism, macrobiotics was a piece of cake for me. Oh, really? <laughs> it didn't affect me in the least. And socially, what? even though when I came back, like from India, I went to my college, you know, which is a very progressive college, Oberlin College, yet I was the only person in the school, uh, uh, I wouldn't say, we didn't have a cafeteria, but anyway, dining room. You know, with hundreds of students, I was the only one eating vegetarian at that time. Oh. Now, of course, that school, like everywhere else, today they have whole dining halls that are vegetarian yeah. or plant-based. But at that time, I was the only one. But for me, again, it didn't matter because I was so used to being the odd one out, you might say, socially. And so I, I, it never bothered me in the least. Wow. Yeah. That's so great, Alex. I'm happy. I'm happy <laughs> that you didn't, um, you know, that you didn't have to deal with that. But I think it's true that 
many people who don't have that kind of family support or background, it's very hard to go against the grain, so to speak, yeah. against the crowd. And it, we're so, we're, you know, human beings are so social. We're so highly influenced by our peers, yeah. you know, whether it's in school or uh, young, you know, in childhood or, or in college or wherever it might be, a work, workplace, highly influenced. So yeah, and as a, a counselor today, I'm constantly, you know, advising individuals and families. In fact, that's one of the biggest drawbacks now to practicing macrobiotics or you know any kind of health conscious uh, dietary approach is that their family does not support them so this yeah. has been a huge problem so as a counselor I've been dealing with that for many years and trying to help them come up with techniques or strategies uh, you know to cope because it it can prevent them from healing you know at many levels Yes, I know. Um, so, um, so I guess kind of like in that in that same area, um, did you did you feel like it was ever like um, hard for you to to um, get your message out? If even like were there were there like obstacles and um and like getting like you know some of these books published or um did you receive like negative criticism about even on that level and how did you how did you get through that well i i think um you might say that in the macrobiotic community in the in the early 70s and 80s and up until maybe the early 90s, uh, there was, of course, uh, you might say, uh, a lot of polarity between holistic health and modern medicine. And in fact, uh, some of the uh, leading uh, uh, physicians and medical associations had uh, severely criticized macrobiotics. Yeah. And there was a famous article, Macrobiotics, the Diet That's Killing Our, Our Children, that was in Ladies, Ladies Home Journal, which was the major women's magazine, I think, in the early 70s. And, and so there were nutritionists at Harvard and all around the country that were condemning and criticizing us. So that made it somewhat difficult for us to attract particularly professional uh, support. Yeah. And so we were considered out of the mainstream. But gradually that changed. Mm -hmm. In fact, it changed into its opposite. So um, the milestones included the, the Senate's, uh, they had a special committee on nutrition, which published um, dietary goals for the United States in 1977, which had a... a, a earthquake-like effect on the medical profession because you had a blue ribbon commission saying that six of 10 leading causes of death in the United States were diet related. And Micho had kind of behind the scenes been helping to, he'd been meeting with some of the architects of that, um, of, of, of those guidelines. And so we were very much involved with that document. And anyway, and that led to the food guide pyramid 
you know, which turned upside down the prevailing standard American diet, which was based on meat and dairy food. And now it put uh, plants, grains, vegetables, and fruits at the bottom of the pyramid as the foundation for healthy yeah. diet. And then only a you know, very small, modest amount of animal food at the top. So there was what I like to call a uh, pole shift uh, yeah. in the modern American diet. Uh, certainly during my lifetime and over the last, uh, you know, generation or more. And, you know, from an animal to a plant-based diet. And so today, uh, I think I was just, I was surprised. I just was reading some notes that the American Medical Association has, has recently, um, you know, supported a plant-based diet and said that animal food should only be used for, you know, very small, you know, like condimental use. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's been a huge shift. So I think we've been very successful over the years. And um, so, so you were, so you have never been afraid to share like um, this information? Uh, no, not personally. No, I didn't. As I said, for me, it was it was very easy, but I'm atypical. I think, yeah. you, know, again, you know, I was basically supported by my my own family and my parents and, you know, and other people. And so, and then I always had a community of friends and so forth uh, around me. So yeah. there was no, no problem. But again, I do sympathize because most people around this country are living in communities you know, where they may, where they're often the only people eating in this direction. Yeah. And I visited and taught and spoke at many of these places. You know, we, the best way to organize is to have a potluck dinner, you know, where, where you, po you post on a school bulletin board or a laundromat or a natural food store that you're going to host an event and ask people to bring a dish. And, you know, if you're a vegetarian or macrobiotic, say, please don't bring dairy or sugar or whatever. But let them bring whatever else they want, and then you share that, and then they talk. And anyway, that's the way to form a little community. That's the best single method I know of. Aww. I would love to try that out <laughs> when uh, when we can get together. You know, um, so what what do you think is the biggest difficulty for people who are transitioning into macrobiotics. Um, yeah, specifically macrobiotics. Because I know, you know, some people are, I feel like people, um, a lot of people maybe find it easier to be vegetarian, like just not eat meat. And then even from there, it's a lot of people find it a little bit more challenging to become vegan and even vegans <laughs> have have a hard time becoming macrobiotic um so what would you say is one of the biggest difficulties well i think we've already talked about the social dimension which may well be the the biggest inhibiting factor uh, though when people get sick then then often they're motivated to do whatever it takes 
So in fact, that's in, in the Macarada community over the years, that's been a main major source of people yeah. if people who are ailing from serious illnesses. It was interesting because the Kushis at a very uh, early time, about in the early 70s, uh, when I was at East West Journal, again, where macrobiotics was not well respected and we were under attack by the medical profession. In a way, they decided you know, to hit back, so to speak, or nonviolently hit back by targeting cancer see and yeah. the disease they wanted to focus on because at that time there was no you know real uh cure for cancer and and meanwhile Mitchell had been counseling for a number of years and many people had recovered and yeah. so we began holding conferences when these people uh you know just ordinary people would talk about their own case histories and we would invite scientists and physicians to attend and they could you know ask questions and go over some cases, their their medical records in scans and so forth, and and it was very convincing. You know, it was a grassroots kind of revolution. So that helped to really change uh, that uh, orientation. Uh, but in terms, for example, of, of moving, uh, you know, from different through these different stages, and uh, and I uh, and I think it's natural to go through these stages. You know, so except if you are very sick, most people do go through stages. They don't just leap from the standard diet into macrobiotics. It's much wiser in a way to go step by step. Yeah. But uh, as you mentioned, meat and animal products, as a rule, are very easy to give up. You know, there's kind of no addictive uh, kind of uh, connection that most people have with those foods. And they're very easily replaced by plant protein from tofu or tempeh or whatever. Uh, but the most difficult foods to give up are dairy food. And, and we find that uh, people can go for years, even after the macroproduct, you know, they binge around with dairy for a long time. And, and I think, I think that comes from their own past um, childhood. It's almost a Freudian explanation is that yeah. many of them grew up with, with bottled milk, cow's milk, you know, as their main sustenance. So in a way, the cow was their mother because they were not breastfed. So they have an emotional attachment to dairy yeah. food. And also dairy food kind of creates a little bit of a childlike mind and mentality. You know, everybody yeah. loves ice cream. You just, you know, have a good time. But, but, um, Anyway, so I think we find, I mean, I find the dairy is the one you have to be the most careful about. Again, sugar, it's fairly easy to give up because there's so many natural sweeteners, you know, that you can use instead and you don't miss the sugar particularly. But dairy is a little bit difficult. Yeah. And um, so, um, I was really interested. I've heard I've heard you talk um, with other with other people on YouTube, um, and I heard you talk about amber waves of grain, and I and I and I went on your website, um, and for everyone listening, I encourage you to check out the amber waves of grain website. There's a lot of cool information there, <laughs> um, but. I guess um, 
you told us your story about um, being in Vietnam and being really impacted by the words of the the, the Buddhist there. Um, so were you more in, inspired um, by your own feel by your own experience to create um, more knowledge, like specifically about grain and rice, or um, did Michio kind of like encourage, I'm sure he did encourage you, um, but like, did, was that more of like your own thing or um, was that something that like Michio wanted you to do? Like, did he direct you in that direction or it was more like, it was more like a no, collective? No, yeah. There was, there was no direction uh, by Michio per se. No, I mean, in macrobiotics, we teach that grain is the foundation of the human diet. You know, that going back to uh, ancient hominins in, in Africa millions of years ago, they evolved from earlier primates by eating wild grains, whereas the monkeys, the apes, and so forth had eaten primarily fruit, seeds, and nuts. See? So grain, which grew wild, was a new food. And so those uh, who began to eat grain evolved higher consciousness, began to stand upright, and many other physiological changes took place. So grain is central in a macrobiotic understanding. Then around 2000, uh, you know, as the new millennium began, Monsanto, which is the big um, biotech company in St. Louis, had announced that they were going to introduce and genetically modified rice in the Sacramento Valley in Northern California. And this is the center for organic brown rice production. And so we were very concerned that this would inevitably contaminate the crop, both of conventional and organic rice. So I went out to the valley with a colleague and anyway, we started Amber Waves in order to educate the farmers but then also consumers about the potential hazards of genetic engineering, which was an untried uh, new technology, uh, which has later been shown through many independent medical studies to have many adverse effects on human beings and wildlife. And so we launched a campaign there to uh, prevent or stop genetic engineering. But uh, it was interesting, the, the it was exactly that time that Mrs. Cushy, Aveline Cushy, uh, with whom, again, I had worked for 20 years, um, was kind of uh, dying. And I, the last time I saw her uh, at her home in Brookline in Massachusetts, um, she was uh, in bed. And I, I had just come back from California, and I told her about my visit to the rice fields. And she kind of sat up and she took, she, she, she told me, because we had visited her place in Vietnam, in um, Japan when I traveled with her. So I knew that she came from a rice growing area. But she said, you know, Alex, the last time I went back to Japan to visit my family, she said, I was so shocked because in the rice field, the farmers were wearing gas masks because they were spraying chemicals. And she said, I noticed that all the little insects and the butterflies and the snails and, you know, this incredible wildlife that, that populates the rice field. She said it was all disappearing. 
And she said, I was so shocked. And then she took my hand and she said, Alex, she says, promise me that you will, you know, continue through amber waves to protect rice, you know, from chemicals or GMOs or whatever it might be. And so that was kind of a blessing that she gave us and she died shortly thereafter. And so that was, yeah, a transmission, you might say. And so ever since, that has been one of our foremost projects. Oh my gosh, when I had no idea about that, I had no idea. So when you, when I heard you talk about it on a, on different, different places, I was like, whoa, I was like, so Alex Jack, basically, (laughs) he's the reason why we have like good quality rice now. If if it wasn't for you, right? (laughs) No, 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 I don't take any personal credit. We have a lot of people involved in our campaign. There are many other groups came in (laughs) but we did stop the rice uh the gmo rice in california and it was we also were involved with the uh you know texas and in louisiana and missouri anyway it was all stopped no gm rice in america we also took on wheat because monsanto came back with gm wheat and that was an interesting story too because wheat is a much bigger crop in the united states it's the number one grain and that could have been totally disastrous. And, and we had happened to be visiting the, what was called the U.S. Wheat Associates, which was the main trade group in Washington, D.C., which handles the export you know, of billions of dollars of rice for the whole country. And, and we gave them, we had petitions at that time signed by you know, 25,000 people, and they were very impressed. And... They said, you know, there's a there's a summit meeting among the the wheat growers, I think in in Kansas, you know, in about a week, and Monsanto is going to ram through its GMO wheat. They said we need you to make a case to stop this. Give us whatever you can. So we spent a week putting together a case, you know, against GMO wheat and for ordinary, either conventional or or organic wheat. We gave all our information to the U.S. Wheat Council, which was one of several councils, you know, and farm organizations. But the end result was that they said that that, their presentation was able to kill it. So they got Monsanto to withdraw their, to end their whole campaign to introduce GMO wheat. So that was another huge victory. Wow. That's so great. Well, we are so thankful that you were a part of that. I mean, of course, there's so many other people involved. And yeah. of course, I would like to talk to as many people from that from that time as I can, but we're really grateful. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think it shows, though, that one of the lessons of that kind of thing is that a small group of people, you know, just a handful of people can literally work miracles. Yeah, many different levels, because, again, I've done all kind of projects and it's typically, you know, it starts with just, you know, yourself and a couple people, like minded people. Yeah. And you put in, you know, some hard work and energy. And then at some point you bring in in other people. See, like we use campaigns, getting uh, 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 petitions. You know, this was even before, you know, Internet uh, was available widely. And so then you can get huge support, but you know, you just need a core of, of strong organizers. 
and you can literally do virtually anything. Yeah. Yes, I I mean, just um, an example. My my boyfriend, you know, you you might know him. <laughs> um, but um, he was around the KI um, around the time that you were that you were probably hanging out. Um, but he every everywhere he goes because of course you know eating well is very important to him and so everywhere he goes like restaurant um uh grocery store he he always asks like if there's nothing if there's um there's always something he can eat you know but if there's anything that he sees like oh they could use like better quality soy sauce or "Hmm, maybe they should get some more steamed vegetables here you know he always says something he always um asks to see the manager and he and he's and he always um he's he's not like your restaurant's so horrible (laughs) you know Mm. he talks in a very like kind way and he just mentions it you know and um he does it all the time if he comes back to the restaurant he does it again (laughs) you know um and so a lot of the time just that creates changes. Then they oh, add, absolutely. like, yeah. yeah, they add like um, a new dish. There's there was even one time where a restaurant named a menu item after him. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> yeah. so it's like you yeah. can, um, and even me, like, just at the grocery store, if I can't find something, I ask them. I say, hey, can you like start carrying this? And they start carrying it. So it's like we have more power and control over what we're eating, what's available to us, than we think. <laughs> we have, yeah, we have amazing power. Yeah, again, those very small little kind of ordinary everyday steps add up and can have a tremendous impact. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, and do you, do you find that it's, more difficult for you to speak or to write about macrobiotics or do you feel like it's like pretty pretty similar no that's a great question yeah as i mentioned my background was more with writing so i worked for the uh east west journal i had even before that i was always involved with magazines and newsletters and college and high school uh so teaching was was very formidable to make the transition. Um, and I started teaching uh, again after I started working directly with book projects with Michonomaly. Yeah, I guess because you know I'd go I would go with them on trips or to to you know their lectures or seminars, and then, and then Micho would ask me, oh, you know, Alex, you know, give speak for ten or fifteen minutes on something, or he'd give me a topic. You know, so that was kind of how I started, you know, as formally. And then, and then the Cushy Institute, uh, then I became a teacher at the Institute. And, um, but I must say, it took me uh, several years to, to really feel comfortable teaching, because yeah. it was a huge transition from, from writing to teaching. Yeah. And kind of hard to explain because there, there are many dimensions involved in both. But one thing is like when you're writing, you know, you're, you're going across the page uh, horizontally, right back and forth like this. 
um, though you're being inspired vertically, but anyway, you're, you're going like this. Yeah. And when you're speaking though, you're more vertical as a rule standing up. And so it's coming directly. And that's the other thing, writing, there's always the, the editing process. So, so typically, I'm not, I wasn't ever a Mozart, you know, where I could just channel things, you know, the famous story about Mozart, you know, at, at the coffee shops in Vienna, and he'd be channeling a symphony with one hand and have his hand around the waitress with the other hand. <laughs> but, but so for me, writing was more like sculpture, you know, I would make a first whack at it and then I would chip around it and the finished product would come out. The teaching, there's no second chances. You know, the, when you speak everything, you know, it's your first impression, it's your last impression. Yeah. So it was a huge transition. So, but I, I, I tried or hoped that I made the bridge that gap. So I feel comfortable now in a classroom, you know, or on a program like this teaching you know, without notes or just kind of extemporaneously. That's so awesome. Um, and what do you, what differences do you see in the application of macrobiotics today than when you first started? Well, that's another excellent question. Um, and there, there are actually many, many, uh, changes that have taken place. And I might preface this by saying that macrobiotics essentially is a philosophy of change yes. and of adapting to, to ever-changing circumstances. Mm -hmm. So it's not like there's a fixed code or dogma or, or anything there. So it's natural that changes do take place. Mm -hmm. But I would say that, that for example, the uh, Micho Kushi's uh, basic orientation uh, when I was his student and later his colleague or teacher, fellow teacher, uh, was what he used to call uh, degenerative disease. That meant cancer, heart disease, diabetes, chronic diseases. Because yeah. when he started teaching, again, the medical profession, they had no solution for these. They denied that there was any connection between diet and health. Yeah. And it was all the only connection was for nutritional deficiencies, you know, scurvy and pellagra and beriberi. But the idea that, that the modern diet or overnutrition could cause these diseases was laughed out of court. You know, like say it was ridiculed, but slowly, gradually. So anyway, that was his main focus for most of his life was on, on this. Of course, he, he had a great spiritual dimension to his teaching because health then was the precondition for peace. And peace was the precondition then for spiritual development. And he did teach that at great depth. But, but I would say that what was perhaps uh, overlooked in the early macrobiotic community at that era in the 20th century uh, was all of these pressing environmental issues, which have now come to the fore and emerged foremost. They have overtaken, I would say, the basic health dimension, personal health dimension. So we're not yeah. talking about uh, the health of the planet. And there is actually uh, a direct connection. Personal and planetary health are indivisible. And when we change our own health, the planet changes and vice versa. 
but we're all now aware of global warming and climate change and uh, lack of biodiversity and desertification and everything else. And so I think that the macrobiotic community now has moved over the last 20 years more into addressing uh, those concerns and again, linking them to the modern uh, diet and agriculture, because as we all know now, and statistics and studies have documented that main cause of global warming and climate change is the modern way of eating. It's the single biggest factor uh, creating uh, carbon and greenhouse gases. And this is well known and, and scientists uh, are now uh, promoting this and many people are beginning to change their diet for this reason, um, you know, as well as their personal health reasons. So that's a huge dimension of the change in macrobiotic orientation. The second big change and probably equally as uh, profound in a way is that uh, when I began macrobiotics, I think like many um, ways of life in schools and educational orientations and religions and everything else, it was male-oriented. It, it was pretty much dominated by patriarchal views. Uh, and because our teachers at that time were primarily from Japan, uh, Micho Kushi and his teacher, George Osawa, it had a very strong component of the men uh, teaching and the women cooking and a very strict division of the sexes. And that was justified in terms of yin and yang and some of the theory classes and everything else. And I don't think I felt comfortable with that from the beginning, because again, I came from a unique family, which was more egalitarian. I had a grandmother who was a suffragette, so she was marching <laughs> the women's vote in the 1920s. And so I grew up, you know, but that, again, that was very unusual milieu. But anyway, I, I and then many others questioned this kind of unquestioned uh, orientation of macrobiotics. And gradually over time, it has changed. So I would say that again, now in the 21st century, uh, the macrobiotics now is pretty egalitarian. And that there are a lot of, I mean, that, that everything, the women are teaching now everything and there are a lot of men now in the kitchen cooking, teaching cooking. And so the, again, the kind of changes we've seen in progressive society are now pretty much thoroughly been um, introduced and, and accepted within the macrobiotic community. Yeah, I mean, I feel like um, even, uh, I mean, I talk, I talk about it with my boyfriend a lot. Um, yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, in so many ways, um, I mean, it's a whole thing, we, you know, that whole topic could be a whole thing, but um, I think even in that, um, there, we could talk about yin and yang, you know, like, um, just like everything changes. So, mm -hmm. so it's like, at one point, um, yeah, there were more male teachers or just when you thought of like macrobiotics, because I mean, honestly, most of my books are <laughs> written by, they're written by men. Um, and um, so it's cool to see, you know, just the shift in the change, but 
um, just like just like yin and yang, nothing is good, nothing is bad. It's just different. It's just a different change of energy. It's that's that's cool. Um, I don't know. It's a cool thing that's happening. Maybe <laughs> um, yeah, different well, kind of energy. It's, it's been again. It's been an axis shift. Yeah. In and in in. Uh, you know how macrobiotics is presented in mm-hmm. classroom and everything. I don't think it's 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 uh, <clears throat> been well received generally, and 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 because a lot of women and girls felt very suppressed by macrobiotic teaching over the years in the past, and yeah. they feel much freer, more liberated, and empowered, and and the men too. You know, uh, uh, definitely, um, it's much better environment for everybody. Uh, yeah. when you have that kind of a, a freer community yeah. so I, and again because of it's interesting because macrobiotics focuses on food and cooking we are often looked at uh, in the wider community you know as as a feminine or feminist uh, um, movement and yeah. a lot of the ridicule of macrobiotic men is that they're feminine they're feminized or effeminate because they cook and so that's one of the challenges that macrobiotic men have had to do with their wider circles of, you know, is so that, that cooking is for men as well as women. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's, cooking is important for everyone. <laughs> even when you're, even children, you know, it's important mm-hmm. for everyone. Absolutely. So, you know, it's just a part of health and everyone needs to be healthy. So, <laughs> um. And um, so what do you think will be an important focus for our health in the future that maybe hasn't been discussed as much in, um, in the books that are already out there or um, maybe even that people aren't talking as much about, like in your opinion, what do you think? Um, is is kind of like the future focus for our health. Well, one of the, I would say, a, a major development in, in the macrobiotic community, at least the circles that I'm involved with, <clears throat> since Mitchell passed away, was was the discovery that that we we made. <clears throat> Micho had always taught, for example, that, that brown rice and other whole grains, um, one of the reasons they were so uh, important to eat was not our own our personal health, but to receive higher consciousness. And he always said that, uh, uh, and that when the grains are growing in the field, they have these, what are called awns, A-W-N, these long uh, bristles on the heads of the growing grain which received the waves and vibrations from the infinite cosmos. And we had always assumed that that the rice that we were eating from California or Texas or wherever had these long awns. And we had taught that for many years. Well, again, our heads were in the clouds, so to speak, because we finally discovered that that the rice that we were eating does not have awns. It's awnless. In fact, most of the rice produced in in Asia for thousands of years lacks awns. 
And the reason for this is that uh, the, the rice that has the yawns gave smaller yields and they involve an extra step to take off. So all things considered, society started moving toward the onless varieties because they are easier to harvest and make. And also uh, they gave greater yields. So, so the end result was that I think consciousness dimmed to some extent because people were not eating the yawn varieties. Meanwhile, this is very interesting that wheat and barley, which are also awned, turns out that the on varieties give higher yields. Interesting. So that in the Middle East and in Europe and North Africa and, and also in Asia where wheat and barley are grown, even today the vast majority is, is, a, is made of awned grains. So you're getting that charge of cosmic energy when you eat whole wheat or barley or rye, virtually the, the only one actually that's deficient is rice. <laughs> so we were shocked when we discovered that. <laughs> but we just thought we were able, we, were, we, we found out though that there here and there, there are individual uh, farmers growing some on varieties of rice. And in fact, we discovered that one of our own colleagues had been growing it for his own personal use here in New England. He was the founder of a miso company and just for his own enjoyment, he was growing brown rice that he had got, actually it was from Ukraine, you know, Ukraine, Russia area that originally come from China, you know, even a thousand years ago before that. But anyway, it was an on variety. So we've been promoting that kind of rice and now there's actually a network of farmers here in New England that are growing it and elsewhere in different parts. It turns out that, that the, the strain of rice grown in West Africa, traditionally going back thousands of years, it's, it's a, di a distinct variety from the Asian rice, but it's, it's very similar looking, tasty. Um, but it's a, it's a West African variety, but that one was on. And so that appears to have uh, continued longer than, the, than the, the Asian strains. In fact, it was brought over, this is an interesting story, when the African people were enslaved by the English and then uh, by American slave traders from West Africa. The vast majority of them, what we call the slaves in the United States were actually rice farmers from that area. And they were brought uh, over, many of them, actually brought over seeds in the pockets of their clothing, rice seeds. And they actually grew this awned rice for themselves in the plantations in the Carolinas and Georgia. Uh, even though the rice that was grown throughout the South was the Asian variety. Now, you know, they had huge rice plantations throughout the South, but it was the Asian rice. But the Africans used their own little Pond rice. And I like to think that that kept their spirit high because, again, it was a more spiritually oriented variety. Oh, yeah. That makes perfect sense. It that makes, makes perfect sense. Yeah. And one of the interesting things I found, too, when I was doing research, you know, Martin Luther King, his, his genealogy is not well known or been researched. You know, I, I guess there have been some kind of dead ends, like so many African Americans. But he did have ancestors that came from Georgia. 
you know, two or three generations ago. And when I was researching his, his um, background, I discovered they came from that rice growing area in Georgia, rice plantations. So presumably they were well aware and maybe even had brought with them some of the African rice as well. Yeah. So anyway, he comes out, King would come out of that whole long tradition of very spiritually high rice eating people. Yes. Peaceful rice, <laughs> which you you talk a lot about that connection. Um, I think a lot of it's very. Um, I think um, in a lot of macrobiotic books, or you know, it's a very very um, clear connection. Um, but uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the connection between um, peace and rice? Yeah, the connection between. Uh, peace and rice was actually uh, uh, discovered thousands of years ago in the Chinese uh, language. The original characters for peace were made up of two ideograms. And the first one was of a cereal grain, either millet or rice, depending on the region in China. And then the second character uh, represented an open mouth. So the idea was that by eating cereal grains, you become peaceful. Isn't that interesting? Those yeah. characters together made the word for peace because it created a more peaceful mind, character, and mentality. So right from, you might say, the earliest wellsprings of Chinese culture and civilization, that connection was well known. So awesome. Um, and do you do you feel or do you realize, Alex, um, like the ripple effect that um, your contribution to the health food movement has made? Do you, do you feel it, or do you think? Or do you, or do you think like, ah, oh, I just did a little bit. <laughs> no, I think the word you used is the key. You said a ripple effect, mm -hmm. and and a ripple is is, you know, like the archetypal ripple is when you throw throw a stone in the lake, right? And then there, are spiralic ripples, ever widening spirals, branch out. But that is just uh, a basic principle of nature. That in yeah. fact, everything we do is spiralic. Our form, our constitution is spiralic. Nature, everything living is spiralic. History moves in a spiralic way. So that all of our actions, thoughts, and words actually are spirals. And so we live in a world of kind of multiple, you know, endless spirals. So where one begins and one ends is really hard to say. But I think, you know, everybody who puts their energy into doing something creates spiral that kind of widens out infinitely. But but you but does do you see like like um do you recognize like because I I I think like when I'm at the grocery store, you know, with my boyfriend and I see, you know, like more plant-based like 
options or like we see um like seaweed in a place where we're like what they sell seaweed here I just think to I just asked my boyfriend I said you think Michio would be happy about this you know like just thinking like compared to when he came here you know um and and there was really a limited um selection for like healthy food um healing food you know there was so much you know, meat and dairy and a lot of processed foods. Um, do you, do you, um, do you recognize like, like the contribution that, that you made and, and the availability of, of knowledge and actual products that, that can help people? Yeah. I've often thought if I were to write a biography of Micho, I would I would entitle it <clears throat> uh, "The Man Who Changed the Way America Eats," because he had such a dramatic impact. Yeah, so I mean, many of our macrobiotic friends and you know people in many allied movements, environmentalists or whatever, have had a powerful impact on society. But uh, again, I don't take any personal credit for any of this. As I said, I came from a long line of families and relatives who, you know, were socially active and this and that, and, you know, had many powerful accomplishments. And, you know, I'm actually quite a conformist from that point of view. Uh, So anyway, we all contribute in our own ways. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, um, did you, so I guess because you came, you, 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 um, studied, did you always want to be a writer? <laughs> well, no, as I said, I, my first love was, was mathematics. And I, oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I suppose at one point I wanted to be a, you know, a chess master or a, a great a mathematician. Um, one point I wanted to be a lawyer, you know, very left brain. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that kind of shifted more. So, uh, yeah, so right now my, I would say my key interests since becoming macrobiotic are actually more like, uh, I'm very keenly interested in, in world mythology and particularly epic literature. And so that embraces, you know, poetry and drama and many, many aspects, but I'm more literary oriented, I would say. I noticed um, when I was looking up, um, you know, every, you know, all everything you've been a part of. I noticed that you um, did. You go to is it called Fringe Festival? Were you a part of that? Or mm-hmm. you you're just you you were just involved in like shake like kind of like Shakespeare stuff and like um, just different, um, not just macrobiotic, you know, work. Well, I particularly, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of research, writing, and study about the Elizabethan era. So I've written several books on on Marlowe and Shakespeare and that whole era. But my interpretation of them, or for example, or also like I wrote a little book on Dante, and I wrote another book on on Homer, great mm-hmm. Greek poet. My my view is that they were all macrobiotic in their orientation. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that they had a deep appreciation of whole grains comes through in all of their writing in their poetry and uh, the stories are totally amazing and uh, so I look at them as is really the you know great teachers of humanity were all macrobiotic so cool so cool um and when are you the happiest alex oh uh, yeah well that's a great question <laughs> i don't know i uh, we talked about uh, writing and teaching the thrill of writing, I would say, or the joy of writing is in the moment of actually writing. Because you, you know, you, I feel sometimes at the best you're channeling something, or sometimes you're, you're, you're a detective and you're looking for some clue in research, and then you stumble upon it, or things all converge. So the process of writing is totally uh, makes, makes me happy or joyful. Uh, the, the uh, what do you might say, the afterlife of writing. It's interesting, I, unless you're, you know, like a best-selling author, there's very little feedback <laughs> <laughs> from writing. You know, you give books to your friends and relatives and then, you know, occasionally they'll, they'll talk to you about this or that or whatever, but, but there's not a whole lot of feedback, at least in my experience. The reverse is true with, with teaching. Teaching, again, you can do some preparation, but ideally you teach without, you know, you can have notes, but you, a lot of it's just extemporaneous or trying to channel. And, and if you get really good at it, you can just do it. Yeah. So that brings a certain amount of joy, certainly, to be able to do that. But then in my experiences, you get a lot of feedback from teaching from your class or your audience. There's just constant interaction afterward. And, and if you're well prepared and you know, can get into the give and take, that's you know, quite um, joyful too, because you know, you're relating and you're learning and you're sharing all kinds of things. Very different from writing, <laughs> at least for me. So again, which, which is better? I don't know. Anyway, I've continued to do both to do both now, and hopefully will continue in both regards. Yeah. Um. And what did you eat for your last meal, most recent meal? Can you tell us? Well, it was relatively simply. I I I just made a, a tempeh sandwich for lunch. You know, I just sauteed tempeh and onions. And then uh, I had a kind of a whole wheat wrap for that. And then I drizzled some kind of a miso ginger dressing on it. And then that was, oh, and then I had some leftover kale from breakfast and matcha twig tea. So it was very simple. Simple, but sounds great. Um, and do you feel more connected to people living a macrobiotic lifestyle than you did before? Oh yeah, I would say definitely. <clears throat> I think macrobiotics, as I've often defined in my 
my writing or my teaching is simply kind of just uh, living a natural life on our planet, you know, and adapting to circumstances and realizing your highest potential. And in my view, everybody is macrobiotic. Yeah. So many of them haven't discovered it yet. Exactly. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, so I don't draw any hard divisions between people being macro or non-macro. Yeah. Or vegan or meat eating. It doesn't yeah. matter so much to me. And my last question, Alex, is what is your ultimate dream? Well, again, you've got great questions. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can articulate my ultimate dream or maybe I'm still discovering it, but I think our common dream, which yeah. I think Mitchell and Aveline were very good at articulating, our common dream of humanity is creating a healthy, peaceful world, you know, with enough for everybody. And so I think that'll keep keep us busy for a while. And then perhaps <laughs> after we've done that on this planet, we can we can go to another planet and maybe share our, our wisdom and understanding and just kind of play creatively through the universe through this and any future lifetimes that we might enjoy. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you so, so much, Alex, for coming to my to my podcast and doing this interview with me. I think your story and just who you are is is really interesting and what you had to share is is really helpful to a lot of people. And I think um, my audience too will have a better understanding about, you know, healthy eating and about peace and um, the bigger picture, you know? Um, and I'm just so thankful. And I know that um, that people listening are really thankful that you were here today. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. I enjoyed meeting you and, and being on your show. If people would like any further information about my activities, they could go to one of my websites, which is www.planetaryhealth.com. Yes. And on that website, can they also buy some of your books? Yes, we actually have a little little online shop. But we have different conferences and counseling activities and news and so forth. Another site we've created this past year, uh, which you're your viewers and listeners might also like to see is a site we created following the COVID crisis. And that is www.coronavirusanddiet.com. Great. Yes. Be, everyone, be sure to check out those websites. And once again, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you, Michelle. Take good care. This podcast is made possible in part by the patrons over on patreon.com slash the underscore freedom underscore fairy, where you can also sign up and become a supporter. To get a personalized reading from me, visit my Etsy shop 
not your average card, you can click the link in the description of this episode. If you like what I have to share, please rate five stars and subscribe to this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Your ears and your attention are appreciated. Think differently and live peacefully.